This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Today, I'm grateful to welcome two guests from University of Florida, medicinal chemist Dr. Christopher McCurdy. We're getting hammered by some of the bad players in the industry, if you will, that are trying to make a quick buck out of a product that isn't the right intention. The right intention here is to, to help people. And horticulturalist Dr. Brian Pearson. Every one of those plants were cultivated from a mother that is still with us. We've amassed a collection of Kratom uh, trees and different genetics, and I think that's part of the exciting part of this future. I guess I just want to start off uh, with Dr. McCurdy. You were originally at University of Mississippi, and uh, which that university is known um, for the only federally legal cannabis farm. You were there, and you started to study kratom. I guess it was around 2004. And I'm just wondering, how did you become interested in kratom? Uh, it's a it's an interesting question because it's a, a question that. A lot of people don't know the background on, so I appreciate you asking it. Um, we were studying another plant at the time, Salvia divinorum, uh, which which resulted in a, a neoclaridine diterpene called Salvinorin A, uh, which many people know about. And it is a kappa opioid receptor agonist. And we didn't know what it was uh, in terms of its pharmacology. But certainly, based on its chemistry, no one expected it to be an opioid. And it was really fascinating to me coming out of an opioid chemistry um, training in my postdoctoral work uh, at the University of Minnesota. I just thought I've learned so much about opioids and opioid pharmacology and chemistry that I sure would hope that I can find a way to continue this line of research, but I didn't want to work in the chemistry area that would compete with my postdoc advisor, um, who's, by the way, 90 years old and still funded and still working every day and still kicking butt. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I still look up to him in total amazement. And um, But he he has really focused his career on uh, naltrexone and making derivatives of naltrexone, which is a opioid antagonist, mm. uh, and, and has built an entire successful career around around that one molecule. And I thought, gosh, if there's one molecule out there that I could build a career around, I, I've seen the pathway as to how to how to lay this out in front of me. And so I thought maybe Salvinorin A would be that compound. Um, Salvinorin A was known to be a, a, a hallucinogen. Uh, the plant was called Diviner Sage. Uh, or magic mint. Uh, it's a salvia plant. And um, we were among the first groups funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse to study this once it was realized by Brian Roth's group that uh, Salvinorin A interacted very selectively with kappa opioid receptors. Uh, it became a complete mystery as to how it interacted with kappa opioid receptors because it's. Um, totally uh, breaks the mold of all the textbook requirements of a molecule and how it should interact with opioid receptors. So that, that intrigued me from the, from the get go. It's a neutral molecule. In other words, it can't 
uh, act like an acid or a base. Like many alkaloids are basic compounds and they can accept protons. And those types of interactions are very important when they are in a receptor environment. So they can they can form uh, what we call salt bridges or ionic bridges. So you can imagine that it's like a positive charge being attracted to a negative charge. Uh, and, and that's how those interactions really can form. Uh, Salvinone was a molecule that didn't have any ability to have a charge. It was just a very greasy molecule, not too much different from something like THC, uh, which is not a, able to really participate in acid-based chemistry. So it's a, it's a good story. We were funded by NIDA. NIDA called me and asked me to prepare a talk on naturally occurring analgesic substances uh, and to present that at a conference sponsored by NIDA. And so I did that, and it was uh, really a fun paper. I think it was published in Life Sciences in 2005, and that that paper is um, still one of my most highly uh, cited papers, and that's where – uh, among the research, I came across Mitragyna species. Mitragyna species uh, uh, seemed to be relatively unexplored, untapped. Uh, and there was a paper from 1972. Um, yeah, Macco. Smith, Klein, and French. Yeah, the Macco paper yep. from Smith, Klein, and French, you know, now Glaxo Smith, Klein. Yeah. Um, where they were investigating Mitragyna and, and um, it, it it just blew me away the completeness of that of that work uh and how much was there and then they abandoned it um yeah which seemed very odd uh but but i got some of the backstory on it and i don't know if this is mythological backstory or if it's real but it makes sense um GlaxoSmithKline that that um uh, sorry <laughs> Smith Klein and French at the time uh, yeah. realized that 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 compound mitragynin really was equivalent to codeine or the emerging non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen at that time, but it still had some opioid activity associated with it, um, and and they really decided they just didn't they, there wasn't going to be a marketplace for something that was getting flooded with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that looked to be the emerging new pain relievers um and to compete with codeine is kind of like introducing a no, new cola to compete with pepsi and coca-cola so okay yeah they they kind of backed away from it and decided not to dump you know, at the time, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars into development of this natural product. And so it sat there. It sat pretty dormant. Uh, some Japanese groups picked this up. Uh, Dr. Takeyama and Dr. Uh, Matsumoto uh, worked on this. Tanabe in, in Japan, uh, they did a lot of work in this area. Uh, and then again, it seemed to be abandoned. And it, it just seemed like a perfect time for someone to pick this up and start working with it. And at the time it was totally under the radar, uh, Kratom. No, no one really was aware of it. No one really understood what it was doing other than traditionally it had been used as sort of a stimulant for workers and as a substitute for opium when people were uh, out of their opium and, and also seemed to help people that wanted to get off of opium, be able to transition off of opium. And um, so, you know, we just started playing around with this, trying to isolate the 
mitragynin compound, uh, that major alkaloid, and everybody has gone after alkaloid because it's the most abundant. And generally in plant science, when you have a really abundant alkaloid produced by the plant, there's a reason that it's producing that alkaloid and Brian can speak to this much more so than I can. Um, but in, in general, we would think that's the active pharmacologically active component of the plant. And so we, we went after it. And of course it's the most efficient thing to go after as well, since it's produced in the highest amount. Mm -hmm. And that's why we see most, all of the scientific studies have really focused on, on that up until recently uh, when we've been able to get enough material to, to isolate some of the other alkaloids in, in large quantities. But um, really that's what brought me to it. We got a hold of, uh, three trees that I bought on the internet for $15. They came in. I had no idea if they were real. Uh, <laughs> one of them died immediately. Uh, two of them we started to propagate. And you mentioned the, the federally funded marijuana farm. Yeah. We were able to, we were able to use some of the United States Department of Agricultural, Agricultural Research Service folks that were in that natural product center at the University of Mississippi uh, the USDA actually leases out part of that facility. Um, and so we had some scientists there that were willing to help us try to propagate these trees. Uh, we did that. We did that fairly successfully uh, compared to what was discussed on the Internet about how difficult it was to grow these trees. Mm. Um, we were able to expand from those two trees uh, up to about somewhere between 60 and 70 trees. And I know you've talked about the the study that we've done before on those um, those trees where we isolated uh, several alkaloids but found them to be very low producers of mitragynin. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time, we just felt like maybe we got the wrong thing. Uh, and we decided it was of no use. And so we uh, sadly decided to... Uh, just destroy all those trees and and call it the end of the day of the project. Um, but it, it's funny; it just went on pause for a number of years until uh, we started working with with uh, Dr. Pearson, and then Dr. Pearson can probably take it from there on that part of the story. But the different types of trees, or what we call chemotypes of trees that are present, uh, really became interesting. And then the age of the trees may play a role here as well. But we're not. Mm -hmm. We're not convinced solely of that. We just believe that there exist different plants, um, just like we have different people. Uh, some people have certain enzymes. Uh, just to just to make a, a strong point, some people can eat asparagus and their urine smells funky afterwards, and some people can <laughs> eat asparagus and they never have an issue. So, um, you know, that's because you're lacking, one of those individuals is lacking an enzyme to process that that metabolite and so it's very similar to to plants they they all have different personalities if you will so that that's kind of a a long rambling of how we got into to this work uh we dropped off for a while at, at mississippi and then moved to florida and i know you've spoken with lance mcmahon before mm -hmm. uh and we sort of revitalized a, a lot of things that we were doing at, at that point and um, I know you've talked with Abhishek Sharma. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to stop there and let Brian jump in because I thought it would be cool to, to really have the opportunity for us to do some of these things together uh, because the complementary 
things that he brings to the table and, and the science that he does is so vitally important for us to understand these plants to to really gain a greater appreciation for for that side of of what's happening the real world side if you will yeah uh, so. yeah yeah i mean and I, and I was gonna say this is a good opportunity to talk about the alkaloids from when they start into the plant all the way till when they're metabolized uh out of our bodies well at least mine I, I, you know uh <laughs> my my question this is what we talked about was how much traditional horticultural knowledge was there about growing kratom because we hear a lot of things um from growers like oh you're supposed to prune it a certain way to get the alkaloids going and was there much of any of that to go by before you started the project a uh, great question and and Many times when Dr. McCurdy and I are talking, uh, we use um, cannabis as an example because in many ways the industry and how people have progressed as the cannabis industry has progressed um, is somewhat similar. And so in the beginning, I guess to your question, there's always this great literature, there's this internet forum information. Some of the information can be quite good from hobbyists that have worked with this. Uh, Sometimes that information is wrong i mean fundamentally wrong and and i question it and so looking at what was available in documented peer-reviewed science sort of the gold standard by what you know we would refer to and reference in our work um there were very 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 few there still is very few um, manuscripts peer-reviewed scientific journals talking about the horticultural production and practices um, that were traditional and in part that may be to the fact that Malaysia and Thailand for many years have um, not allowed commercial production of kratom. Uh, and this was being cultivated in Indonesia where this wasn't you know, well documented or there wasn't much of a motivation amongst those growers to document it and share it perhaps with others. So the information online was a bit sparse that I was referring to. It was still a starting point. Um, but some of these things, as Dr. McCurdy mentioned, um, the juvenility or how do we propagate and how challenging it could be, or one of the ones early on that I was concerned about along that same line was that the seed reportedly can only be germinated within 24 to 48 hours after it comes off of the tree, and that you have a very, very narrow window. And you know, as a plant nerd in horticulture, I thought, oh, wow, okay, how am I going to get the seed? Where am I going to find a tree close enough to do this? And later on, when we were able to get our hands on seed and to attempt this firsthand, uh, we realized that, nope, that's definitely not true um, because we're germinating seed that is definitely older than 48 hours old. Uh, We have in our possession some seed that's now going on multiple years uh, old that we're still able to germinate. Um, We do keep them refrigerated fridges, but again, busting sort of these myths. And those myths can be fun. Um, There's a certain element of fun in all of this because you know we're learning things that aren't known aren't documented before yeah and it's rewarding um in my industry we we interact with growers a lot and parties that are interested in this knowledge so we're giving them information that's vital or critical and, and they're excited and enthused to hear this especially when we're able to tell them this with scientific certainty or statistical certainty um with some of this in the next breath it can also be uh, sometimes frustrating because you're starting from scratch um, in a lot of ways, uh, genetics. Dr. McCurdy mentioned uh, various sensible chemotypes. And when we started running into Mitragyna speciosa, the tom tree itself, we know this is what it is. Why aren't we seeing certain alkaloids? 
Um, and that has to do with the non-formal genetics that we're getting. We're getting what we can get from whoever picked it out of somewhere and sent it to us. Um, so yeah, it, to, to try to answer the question, it's, it's exciting, it's challenging, um, and in many ways it's very similar to cannabis, as cannabis has gone through some of that same transition. We were going from individuals cultivating it illegally, in many ways, sometimes using good technique, sometimes also using very poor techniques. And we've seen a rapid shift in our nation and our state where this is coming out of individuals' closets and moving into a more formal structure where we see and expect certain um, correct habits, techniques. And that's where I guess the science of horticulture can be very helpful to bring the science to how to do this and to do the research to understand the science to be able to assist people that are trying to grow uh, trees like kratom or um, industrial hemp in our state. You're starting to learn a little bit about what alkaloids do, how they affect people who take kratom, but alkaloids do different things in the plant. Like, for example, nicotine and tobacco, I think supposedly um, is an insecticide. Do you know anything about what the alkaloids do for the plant, Kratom? Correct. Um, absolutely. And you're absolutely on spot on that. Plants are making carbohydrates through photosynthesis, and they're electing to Put this energy into forms that would be beneficial for the plant. Um, now, in some cases, maybe some of these compounds have usefulness in human medicine, but certainly the plant is probably not evolved to produce these plants for our benefit, but rather its own. Um, and again, putting significant energy and resources to develop these compounds as they require a lot of energy for the plant to, to make them. Um, so we have questions. Uh, you know, what is the purpose of this in nature? Uh, you know, is it an insecticide? Uh, is it doing something to attract pollinators, uh, some kind of competitive purpose? Um, we believe that it's uh, assisting these compounds produced by the plant to help it in an environment that's damp and wet, where pathogens may be present. And so we're working with colleagues in our institution now um, to further understand that, but it appears it's really to help the plant be more competitive in a very humid, wet, damp environment. Uh, such as Southeast Asia. There's a lot of talk about uh, the heavy metals that end up in some of the products that are sold in the United States. The one hypothesis for that is the grinding machines might be old, and so the metals get into that. But there's another idea that the metals are actually leached from the ground into the plant. Is there any truth to that or any ev evidence of that? That's a good question. Some plants can bioaccumulate. They're more selective for things in the soil, such as heavy metals. And in some cases, we have ferns. Um, Dr. Researcher here at the University of Florida at the research center I work at for many years was doing research in the use of ferns to help pull up arsenic. So they plant this uh, fern in the ground, it would bioaccumulate arsenic, you harvest the fern, and it's a much better way to extract the arsenic out of the soil than to try to remove the soil itself and put it in the landfill where it would essentially exist for the rest of its life. Um, the question then becomes, and, and you're correct, if we have these two hypotheses, you know, could it be from some of the processing equipment? Yes, it could be definitely a metal transfer. Um, any kind of food uh, equipment needs to be stainless steel to ensure that we don't have uh, any kind of transfers or dusts being put into products that were to be consuming. Uh, equally as strong, it also could be bioaccumulative of these heavy metals. And so, to my knowledge, I have yet to see any research that has grown these plants under controlled conditions where they were purposely cultivated in soils or hydroponically where these metals were present. 
then to evaluate what the ability for the plant to accumulate these heavy metals in the leaves are. Some plants, again, can do that. Some do not. Oftentimes, it's not in the best interest of the plant to accumulate these metals, just due from a toxicity standpoint to the plant itself. But uh, yeah, that's a good question that uh, the scientific community hasn't put forth any data that I've seen yet to help answer that important question. And I guess to that effect, it's sort of along some of the lines where domestically there's been some interest to cultivate um, kratom here in the United States under conditions and in soils and environments um, where we'd have a higher level of control and knowledge of how it's being cultivated um, on lands that would be prepped in the same way that other food crops would be prepared and managed in the same way and and or cultivated with um, pesticides or no pesticides using, using organic methods um, that would appeal to users that are looking for a product or a food item that was made and manufactured in that, I, I guess, uh, production system. So I think that also is driven um, without having that answer and being uncertain about how the plant is grown, who is processing it, and how it's being, I guess, shipped and handled. Due to some of that, I believe that's generated some interest among domestic consumers to investigate the potential of having a domestically cultivated um, kratom product here. How hard is will Kratom be to standardize since, I mean, you found differing levels of alkaloids. Um, there's different, I was going to ask that too, uh, depending on the region, there's been something that appeared in some papers that uh, maybe, you know, there's mitragyny and it's 66% in Thailand, uh, 12% in Malaysia, there's hardly any in the Philippines. But that is, you mentioned in um, the AKA presentation that that is based on very little research and it's not necessarily true. So the with the fact that it's various, number one, how hard would it be, be to standardize? And number two, is there any truth to this like regional consistency among the variants or is that just based on not enough research? No, and that's exactly true. So we see this variation, and, and you're correct. In the presentation presented to the AKA, um, that was one of the things that kind of bothered me. We have these numbers, the 66% and, and 11% or 12%, mm -hmm. and these were based off of very, very few data points. And so it was a very large extrapolation of a very small sample size, uh, small enough that it, it's taking quite a few liberties to cast that net over the entire you know, region or several countries to make the generalizations. Um, we've seen some significant variability. Um, and Dr. McCurdy can speak on um, behalf of work that he conducted and recently, somewhat recently published, looking at trees that were on the same farm um, in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, under the same environmental conditions, same soil, same practices, and yet had very different um, profiles in respect to, to uh, metragynine. Um, to the question as far as standardization and moving that into a system, um, one of, I guess, the things about my job and the clients I work with, uh, the primary consumer of the information put forward by faculty in my department are uh, specialty crop growers. Oftentimes, these are ornamental growers uh, that are growing you know, millions of plant units, but they have to be absolutely consistent from batch to batch in shape and color and size and weight, and that any flaw in anything that is not essentially perfect, almost manufacturer-like made, will be rejected. And so our entire industry 
Uh, and then Florida is the second biggest producer of horticultural goods and specialty crop goods. So our industry in Florida is very good about getting that standardization. And that's what interests me, where the two worlds of, I guess, my discipline and that of Dr. McCurdy's kind of come together. Because when I look at natural products or herbal medicines, one of the you know, thoughts that I have you know, generally in opinion is variable concentrations from batch to batch variable concentrations and act, potential activity that might be from you know, pill to pill in a capsule. And how do we standardize that? Um, step one, there's going to be genetic variability in the plants. So we have to eliminate genetic variability, which is actually relatively simple. We identify a plant that has certain characteristics we're looking for. That could be a volume of leaf mass or um, a resistance to a pest or disease. And that's where Dr. McCurdy and his team in Gainesville are so helpful because it also is important to identify what alkaloids may be beneficial and those that are not. And that ultimately helps us select which plant or plants we want to move forward. From that point, we can get them into a tissue culture facility generally, where we can mass produce millions of plant units um, a year that are 100% genetic clones every single time. So that eliminates the genetic variability. And then the last component is that environmental component. So even if we have 100% perfect clones of each other, then it's a matter of understanding how the environment influences that plant, again, in terms of growth and yield and herbivory and alkaloid synthesis. And so once we understand the environment, the light, the heat, the water, um, or lack of water and water stress, once we understand that, we can put together a protocol that would allow for... Um, potentially very, very uniform production of plants to try to reduce that variability. And I think that's achievable because we already do that with other plants for other applications. And so it's sort of applying that formula to, to this as well. And if I could just jump in real quick, I, I mean, I think that's a perfect explanation of, of how we do this for plants that are decorative and out on our yard, right? But we're, we're shooting for precise alkaloid contents and ratios and, and um, times, you know, times of the day or times of the year that those plants might have to be harvested. And we still don't know the answers to those things. It'll, it'll take getting to that sort of standard material and then starting to do more studies uh, to look at variety in, in ratios and alkaloid productions. But you could, you could do things where we already see in practice something like uh, the tobacco industry. I mean, a, a Marlboro cigarette pretty much tastes the same and should give you the same effect that it does today that it did 30 years ago, or at least that's the idea behind it. So it's a blending process, um, also similar to the wine and spirits industry, where, you know, uh, a bottle of, of Maker's Mark bourbon tastes the same today as it did 20 years ago. Um, a, a, a certain winemaker may may blend several different barrels of wine to get to a particular taste that he wants or she wants his wine to to possess that may be reminiscent of that particular label each year so you know it could be it could be a, a number of things that we go to we could we could end up with a very genetically standardized plant material but yet depending on and again dr Pearson could speak better to this but you know if, if they're growing out in the field you've got trees that are going to be exposed more to light and heat because they're on the south side of the field versus the north side of the field and and 
all kinds of variables that go into that. And he mentioned that study we did in, in Malaysia we, with our colleagues at the University of Science Malaysia. I worked down at the University of uh, Science there. Where they went out into a plantation there and picked from trees that have been existing there for, for years. Uh, and GPS marked every single tree. So we knew specifically which leaves came from which tree. And there was a mixture of, of chemotypes within that plantation. So you had some trees that produce high levels of mitragynin and other trees that produced extremely low levels of mitragynin. Um, yet those are being sold into the, to the marketplaces by the growers, to the, the producers of traditional uh, croton tea there. Uh, and, and it's all blended together. And they, mm. the individual themselves titrates <laughs> their experience and so you know i i say some mornings i only need one cup of coffee and i'm good to go other mornings it's like man i need three or four cups of coffee and i'd like to think that my coffee is standardized <laughs> for yeah. its caffeine content and everything else but it's, it also depends on the individual that's consuming it and so you know, there's there's so much variability in this whole thing. Um, getting to a standardized product is going to be interesting, um, but not impossible at all. And and just to take it one step further, if we go by United States Pharmacopeia guidelines, which you know we've been talking with the USP trying to get a standardized monograph, uh, or at least the thought of a standardized monograph for what what would be a kratom. Uh, USP, the dietary supplement uh, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And and what we would do is set limits or set maximum amounts of mitragynin that could be present to a minimum amount. Uh, and we do that with all the alkaloids um, or at least all the alkaloids that would be relevant and say that it should have at least this much, but no more than this much mitragynin. It should have probably no detectable levels of 7-hydroxymitrogenin. And so from that point, we could start to develop some other types of more formalized uh, standards as well. So hopefully that answers it full circle from, <laughs> from how it can be done in, in the horticulture sense to how it could be done at the final product stage. Yeah, and as you said before, it's it's kratom really is not the function of one alkaloid. It's kind of a entourage effect, and I think you used a, a symphony orchestra effect. Um, and I, I've seen in the presentation uh, that you said there's actually not, you don't believe there's 40 alkaloids in the plant, but a lot of them are produced maybe during the um, drying process. I mean, especially 7-hydroxymetragenine, um, you've shown that, actually it's it's there's hardly any ever detected in the plant um but it's it's it seems to be abun more abundant in the dried products that americans get so the recent study that came out about 7-hydroxymetragenine showed that if it's metabolized from mitragenine it seems to not have the the uh, problematic effects that if it's taken um, in the product, would it be considered, you know, safer to take a fresh leaf product than a, than a powdered leaf? <laughs> that's, that's the billion dollar question. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I, I don't, I don't think I have a, 
answer that could be really good for that question. Yeah. Um, we've seen we've seen and analyzed many many dried leaf products that are in the U.S. right now that look very similar to some of the traditional fresh leaf brewed tea products. Um, I, I would like to think that some of our work has helped and, and the work of others in science has helped to sort of point out the fact that we shouldn't be trying to find uh, leaf material that has a ratio of mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin. We should be finding leaf material that has no detectable levels of 7-hydroxymitragynin to start with. Because, yeah, we believe that when it's ingested into the body, that the amount of 7-hydroxy uh, that's produced from mitragynin is uh, sort of canceled out by the other alkaloids that are present. Um, and that the pharmacological effect is is not achievable that you see when you isolate 7-hydroxy by itself and give it alone. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things where if you start if you start with a a whiskey that's 40 proof versus a, a full barrel strength whiskey, <laughs> and you take one ounce of each. Um, and you add another ounce on top of that, and you add another ounce on top of that you know, which one's going to get you um, feeling very tired more quickly. It's the mm -hmm. one with more alcohol in it. So if we, if we kind of compare semi-hydroxy um, to that alcohol proof concentration, we want to try and keep that as low as possible so that it doesn't impair anyone. And it doesn't, it doesn't help foster abuse potential of the plant. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be taking Croton to get high, mm. it, sh it shouldn't be a product that's pushed to so many doses where where you get that sort of staggering euphoric effect that most people will puke before they would ever be able to absorb that much to get really high from it. Mm. That's in the traditional method where you don't have a lot of 7 hydroxy So that's why we've been so adamant about saying that. If you take it, as it's pure sanctity product you, where there shouldn't be seven hydroxy present, then you shouldn't have an issue. And yeah, it's a, I totally feel like it's a symphony orchestra and, and you, you take seven hydroxy out um, of the mix, even, even the amount that would be generated as a metabolite in our bodies from mitragynin. If you take it out and you listen to it on full blast by itself, it's, you know, it's, it's comparable to other full opioid agonists, like, like, uh, morphine, like fentanyl and, and those types of things. Um, and so it's, it's something that we have to be very cognizant of. And it's something that the whole, you know, Kratom community should be very cognizant of because that those are the things that are going to cause problems moving forward. So if we want to make this a really, uh, beneficial product to the world, which I think we do. And the World mm -hmm. Health Organization sort of underscored that recently that it's, you know, it, they don't want to, they don't want to put a full investigation into this. It's a traditional medicine in the world and the emerging science is showing promise. Um, so, you know, we, we, I think we're, we're, we're getting hammered by uh, some of the bad players in the, in, in the history, if you will, that are trying to make a quick buck out of a product that, you know, isn't, isn't the right intention. The right intention here is to, to help people, uh, to make the world a better place and, and not cause harm. And, uh, 
I think that's, you know, that's at the end of the day, that's what all of us and all of the responsible Kratom users want to see happen. And it's going to be the few bad apples like we see in every type of <laughs> industry that, that cause, cause problems and raise flags for regulations. And there's so much red tape uh, in all of our jobs because somebody screwed up and got away with something and put some other <laughs> barrier in place for everybody else. So, Yeah. Have you seen a lot? Because I know there was a paper on like purposeful adulteration, adulteration with 7-hydroxymetragenine. Is that in a lot of the extracts where that happens? And, and, and you've said before that, you know, if they try to, if they oxidize it purposely, then it, then it oxidizes some of the other alkaloids along with it. And, you know, we're not sure what any of that does. Um, are you seeing a lot of that? And, and is there any, um, cause I know you test, um, product samples and is there ever evidence of like maybe fentanyl or somebody purposely spiking it with a, a stronger drug? Uh, so a lot of, a lot of good questions there are a lot of uh, ground to cover. Um, first and foremost, the, the paper that we published, I think it was in 2016, on suspected adulteration of Kratom products. Uh, we, we, we purchased a bunch of products, and um, we analyzed them, and we found the 7-hydroxymitragynin content to be pretty much all over the place. Mm. Um, some very, very low level, some very, very high level, some that we never even thought possible high levels. Um, and so the immediate thing that comes to mind is, well, somebody's got to be adding material here. But when we looked at it a little bit closer, uh, even after we published it, what, what you could see is, is that every time the 7-hydroxy levels went up, the mitragynin levels were, were much farther down. And so that to us started to, to indicate this potential hypothesis that, well, maybe Mitragynin is being metabolized in the air or by light or by heat or whatever it is. And we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, we're certainly working uh, on those projects. Um, but if that's what's happening, that could explain why you see such large levels, right? This product is harvested from a tree. It's dried out in the hot sun, Some, in some cases on the wet floor uh, of, of the the jungles where it's harvested and then um, it's ground up in a, a grinder that could cause a lot of friction and heat in that process. Um, they're, they're out in that hot sun and then they're packed into containers and shipped across the globe to the U S where they're, you know, they're not in refrigerated or what they call reefers uh, <laughs> to, to make sure that a proper environment is maintained for a food product. And so it's no surprise that those early products that we were testing were all over the place. And I'm, I'm happy to say, and it, it, it agrees with a lot of things that are um, going on in independent testing labs that we've seen those levels of 7-hydroxy come way down in many of the, the fresh products that are, or I should say dried products that are being um, distributed in the u.s uh so then that comes to the next question you know well have we have we seen anything else there oh um there's been a lot of reports on the internet of of ways to chemically sort of home chemistry your own kratom 
Mm-hmm. And so we started trying all those out in the lab. We were just taking everything we could find off the internet. Uh, I won't mention specific sites or anything like that, but we, we reproduced those in, in our controlled laboratory. And yeah, you get increases in 7-hydroxy, but it's a non-specific oxidizing event. And so you oxidize every single chemical that's in that plant. What the result of that is, I don't know. But most people like to take antioxidants <laughs> for benefits of health. Mm-hmm. And so the thought of taking a whole bunch of oxidized molecules into your body is, is really not uh, intelligent thing to do if you want to be on this earth for a while. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, the second thing is quite frankly, uh, you know, people were reporting that the, these are non-toxic uh, oxidizers. Um, and, and that's just frankly false. I, I mean, <laughs> oxidizer, I, I'm not going to go out and buy a chemical that says it's an oxidizer, but it's non-toxic. It's non-toxic to the environment because it can be diluted out. But if you go and take a spoonful of those oxidizers along with your croton, you're you 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 might as well uh, get yourself ready for the emergency room because it's going to be pretty ugly. Hmm. So there's there's that level. And then the final thing I think you asked was, do we see anything like fentanyl um, adulterants in, in these? And um, we have seen uh, we have seen adulteration of uh, croton products in the marketplace, uh, not from things that we've purchased, but by physicians, uh, emergency room physicians that have contacted us stating that they had someone admitted that swore they were only on Kratom and did not take illicit substances, but their tox panels lit up for um, different substance uses. Um, and so we said, fine, if you can get a hold of their material and that they ingested and send it to us along with from them or, 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 you know, most of the time that wasn't as possible. Um, But we were able to get the materials and there was one material that we found that had um, morphine in it and why someone would take a incredibly more expensive pharmaceutical product and put it, put it into a plant material it's only it's only to think about it this way. If you're a new person into the market and you're trying to establish yourself, you either put out really high quality, expensive, well-tested product, or you put out product that's potentially going to pack a little bit more of a punch than the other competitors uh, and, and somebody will get on it. And that's, yeah, that's the big reason why the whole herbal supplement industry and the whole dietary supplement industry is, is scary. And quite frankly, there's, there's regulations there, but there's not enough people to enforce the regulations. A lot of products that are being sold, you know, I, I, I try to speak this as an entire industry, not just Kratom. I mean, there's stuff that's adulterated all the time. We hear about it with like Viagra being present in some herbal products. And we hear about herbal products being sold that don't even have the plant material that they say is on the package. Um, So it's it's an unfortunate scenario that someone would do that. We, We have tested two separate products from two states incredibly far from each other. Um, one had morphine, as I said, the other one had 
uh, hydrocodone present. And so, mm. um, just, just kind of frightening from, yeah. from that aspect. We have not, thankfully, uh, we have not seen fentanyl in anything, but it wouldn't surprise me, uh, as fentanyl seems to be appearing in everything from marijuana to, um, to, to heroin, uh, oxycodone pills and heroin. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it's totally trying to, uh, increase those, uh, product bangs, if you will. So it's, I still call it a wild, wild west market because it is until we get some, some real standardizations in place and some real uh, controls on what products are being sold and, and what kind of guarantees we're giving to a consumer that's buying those products uh, that they're, you know, I, I've, I've said it for years. You, I want to buy something that I'm signing up to, to take, right. If I, if I buy um, a gallon of milk at the store, I expect it to have, all the things and the benefits that I want from that myth and not have other crap in it. So yeah. The history of, of alcohol, um, I think is very analogous to that. Where mm. Some of our earliest um, laws in alcohol production that came out of England was due to adulteration of products. People were buying, you know, uh, I guess different types of beer and, they were getting a feeling, but it was being uh, feeling was because people were putting in compounds to try to simulate that buzz and to bypass system because it was cheaper. And so we had standardization and regulations put into place to assure the consumer they were purchasing what they were purchasing and that nothing toxic was added. And I guess sort of uh, similar to the United States when we came out of prohibition, um, you know, if you were buying a moonshine made you know on top or behind a, a mountain on a still you, you may not know the proof or the quality or contaminants but certainly uh, when a consumer now goes into a store that has the information of who produced it and where and with what and what alcohol concentrations of the consumer is um, guaranteed a product and a knowledge of the product um, is made again with a certain level of safety um, and so I we see that historically in other products um, and, and that uh, you know, they apply here to Gratom and Gratom products as well. And is it just a matter of enforcement or should there be like a little bit more regulation for like scientific rigor behind? Because in all of the dietary supplements industry, as you said, there's other things that they're constantly contaminated and and they don't face a lot of regulation. But then when you get into, you know, we're going to develop a, a drug, that's going to take a long time, lots of money. And is the GMP um, standards enough for maybe Kratom or should there be, should every company have a full alkaloid panel on their product? I mean, ideally that would happen because then we could know what we're getting. Yeah, I, I I think it would be great if if you could, um, yeah. if that's ever going to happen. I, I I don't know, uh, you know. But for most food products, we know exactly how much protein and fat and carbohydrate and what's in there. Um, I, many questions I get all the time are, what are the nutritional benefits of kratom? And we've we've never really looked into it. Does it have vitamin K? Does it have ascorbic acid? Does it have you know, certain, certain things that would be desirable as a dietary supplement in it. Yeah. Um, those are things that nobody's really looked at because we've all been focused on the, the therapeutic um, and, and, and making sure that we, we get some science behind uh, some of those therapeutic type claims. Um, 
but yeah, I, you know, the GMP is a, is a great step forward. Um, there's problems with it, uh, but it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the problems are inherent in it that you can be inspected and pass for GMP. Uh, and then as, as the inspectors leave and give you your certification, when are you going to get inspected again? Are there surprise inspections? Um, you know, how well are those companies maintaining that quality of production every single day and every single minute of every single day? Um, you know, but those are still question marks out there right now. Um, and I'm sure that there are some, some vendors that are top notch flying high above everybody doing everything right every second of the day. And there's others that get their certification and maybe become a little more lax until the next recertification product mm-hmm. comes by. You know, the, the DEA is, um, is interesting because they'll do surprise inspections and we have to have uh, DEA licenses to, to do some of the work that, that we do and they can show up anytime, any day and, and they want to inspect your records and you're safe and make sure that um, you have adequate inventory and you're doing the adequate level of security on the products that they've entrusted you uh, to, to be able to possess. And, you know, they, they, they can show up any day. Uh, you know, should, should GMP regulations be the same way? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many people are out there that, that can do it. it. You know, with Brian and I yeah. both have worked in the industrial hemp project here in the state of Florida and, uh, you know, the growers have to be below 0.3% THC. And when, uh, if they exceed that amount, they have to destroy their fields. Are there going to be enough people to go around and police that uh, and, and ensure that uh, that fields that are being harvested are, are adequate? So, yeah. you know, I think it's a, it's a big question mark for, for all of it. It's never going to be a perfect system. I mean, we still have drug products, prescription drug products that get recalled because something happened or there was a slip up. It, it's very rare at that level, but it still happens. And so, I, you know, I think everything we can do to provide some level of regulation um, helps everybody as a whole mm. uh, from from vendor to consumer. And you know, as as we're able to get online with uh, product production in the United States, we'll even have greater control of that because understanding this is why this is why uh, Dr. Pearson's work is so vitally important to the future of of kratom use in the United States. It's understanding how to grow these things, how to cultivate them, how to ensure that you're you're not sequestering metals, you're not getting the wrong types of harmful chemicals near or associated around them. Uh, even when you think they might be appropriate um, ways to, to aid the plants. And so, you uh, if, if we can, if we can do it, um, our goal here ha- has sort of been to be able to understand this thing from, from seed to consumer. And, uh, I think, I think, uh, Brian, uh, Dr. Pearson has a better way of, <laughs> describing it um but you know i I think control over the whole uh industry is is where it's going to be at and getting adequate product that 
we really know and we can produce with a certificate of analysis or something like that on the mm-hmm. on that bottle is is the way that this needs to end up and um yeah we're we're totally about trying to figure out how how to make that happen how to keep the product accessible uh safe and beneficial to everybody that needs it um you know i i i, I will I will address the ugly elephant in the room real quick because everybody thinks that it, being in pharmaceutical research and being in drug development, the only interest that I have is going after this thing to make new pharmaceuticals and, and get rid of the product itself. And that's mm-hmm. the furthest thing from furthest thing from the truth. Uh, what we want to do is decrease any type of harm that could be associated with the benefit uh, so that so that individuals have access to something that's natural, that's safe, that we we can trust. Um, can it inspire us to create pharmaceuticals? Well, heck yeah! I mean, twenty five percent of all prescription drugs are either natural products or inspired from natural products themselves, and. You know, we this thing, isolating these alkaloids, understanding the chemistry of them, understanding the specific pharmacology, albeit turned up on full blast, um, is so vitally important to our understanding of how they all will come back and work in concert together within the plant um, as that symphony orchestra. But they also start to point us in other directions. Can we can we develop a whole new class and a whole new area of antidepressants or a whole new area of anti-anxiety medications or a whole new area of pain medications? You know, so so there's a lot of ways that it can be mutually beneficial down both pathways, not, you know, not to exclude one over the other ever. Uh, Mm. that, That would never be anything we've set out to do. I think. You know, I feel very blessed and very benefited from running into this plant the way that I did as we talked at the outset of this. Um, it, it appeared it has continued to pop up in my life when I've tried to give up and <laughs> and say we don't have funding to do this. Suddenly funding comes from somewhere or interest comes from outside to help us move it forward and continue moving the work forward. And, um, you know, I feel like I owe as much to this plant as, um, as, as the plant owes to the world. And so uh, there's, there's so much there we just don't understand and we haven't tapped yet and so much more work to do. The plants from that study are still growing, right? The plants from both studies, those particular plants were unfortunately destructively harvested um, as oh, soon as okay. they get the biomass. But the good news is uh, they came from known mother stock. So every one of those plants were cultivated from a mother that is still with us. We've amassed a collection of uh, palm trees and different genetics. And I think that's part of the exciting part of this future and where the synergy works out so well with Dr. McCurdy. Um, As much as he loves to hear about the plant nerd side of the world, I am just intrigued by the chemistry because that also feeds back to our work. Um, as he was just saying so inspirationally, all these different things that this plant may be able to do in terms of improving human health. And if we find there's certain attributes or certain compounds, alkaloids, that are beneficial for specific um, you know, improvements in human health, 
then that inspires us to target that and then to breed plants and new genetics that would target that need. Um, and so it kind of comes full circle back to us to say, okay, here's our new goal. Let's go ahead and develop plants that have the following attributes. And uh, we are, are blessed enough to also have a, a brilliant young woman working in our team that uh, came to the university several years ago who is a plant breeder and a geneticist. And so I think the future of this moving forward is to, one, understand the plant and understand the chemistry that it could provide us with. And then two, you know, what can we do to improve possibly these plants? And this wouldn't be GMO. You're using genetics within the same genome. So the same thing could occur if you were breeding the plants traditionally. You're just speeding up the process a bit by using newer molecular techniques. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just as excited at what the future of this plant provides to us. But um, those mother or those plants are still alive. The genetics are still with us. And uh, it is my duty to ensure that we keep as much genetics as possible. And to add to that, um, you know, our, our, I think our team's goal here is to try to build up a germ plasm repository so that we have a large collection to draw from to study with and to better understand the plant. And uh, at the core, I'm a plant nerd, so I can never say no to a plant. I always take them home, even not for Thomas or my house, but I collect various plants and this, this plant has worked its way into my heart. And so keeping them alive and making sure they're healthy are uh, one of my pursuits of joy and also pursuit of my employment. Um, so they are alive and well. Uh, it's sort of like stray animals for you. I, I love it. It's, um, <laughs> I, you know, I want to, I just want to, jump on and piggyback that just a little bit just to say about strains um and so many products being sold under different strains and 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 yeah you can you can buy product with different levels of mitragynin in them and um they they can you know a, a vendor might be able to say hey this one is going to have a little less mitragynin than this one and we're going to say this one's better for you know mood enhancement or this one's better for whatever and you can't really tie any claim to anything anyway it's mm -hmm. illegal um by the fda so but the but the bottom line is um i think what we're seeing is like like dr pearson said is just really remarkable right now uh because if we can start to understand and control the alkaloid level production in these plants, just very analogous to what we're seeing in the cannabis industry right now. You go into a dispensary um, and you you can find products with all kinds of levels of THC yeah. uh, and CBD. And so, you know, why can't, why, I think Kratom is the next medical marijuana. I've said it for a while. I think what we're going to be able to do with this genetic repository that Dr. Pearson is amassing is, really understanding which which chemotypes that we talked about earlier are going to be better for, you know, making you feel good, making you like an antidepressant type thing or anti-anxiety uh, tea versus something that could be more for, um, you know, pain relief or, or something down the road. It, we'll, we'll never be able to make those claims unless we have those standardized products yeah. put into place with clinical trials behind them and then, then we can have those products. And as long as we can demonstrate that there's no abuse potential to those products, um, you know, they would they would remain over the counter uh, and and be accessible as dietary supplements. And so that's you know there's so much to do, and there's so much future and promise for the future 
uh, with this plant. It's it's just sort of giving us little clues every now and then that hey, keep keep going, keep. I'm I'm here for a reason for all you people, and I I, I laugh because Dr. Pearson says no, it's 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 doing it completely because it's of, of its environment, and that's probably realistic. Um, but if you get into the spiritual thoughts of it and the and those types of um, shamanistic views of the world, uh, you know that they're, they're they're here for our benefit as well. Uh, and so that's I, I I hold that very near and dear to my heart and. Uh, and really love these plants too. And, and I, I generally don't pick up any, just any plant and bring it home, but uh, <laughs> I, I have, I have done that with a few, particularly uh, things that are of interest medicinal. So, but uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for doing this. And um, it was good to finally talk to you, Dr. McCurdy. And it was great to talk to you, Dr. Pearson. And I, I, and I want to say, um, Brian, thank you for being persistent uh, and, and getting on me. And I'm, I'm really glad though, at the same time that you had the opportunity to talk with some of the, the team members uh, on our team before, before I got to come on here. Um, they, they deserve uh, so much credit for the work that we're doing too. And, and I end up being the one shoved out in the, in the front of everything all the time. And so I, I really <laughs> think it's time that, that this whole team gets recognition for, for the work that they do. Um, I, I'm happy to be the cheerleader and, and lead it, but um, man, we've got incredible scientists that are working so hard uh, to make this all happen and, and make our understanding, uh, pull the science behind this plant from, uh, like I said, from, from all the way that things that Dr. Pearson has learned and taught us uh, to the things that we've learned and taught him. It's, it's a, uh, really symbiotic relationship. I'd like to echo that. I, I thank you so much, Brian, for the opportunity to have us talk here today. I can always talk about Kratom and plants and horticulture, and it's uh, great to know that uh, folks out there are interested in the science that we're doing. They're excited about it, uh, and they're on board with us to try to learn as much about this amazing and unique plant as possible. So, Thank you for time today and for helping to relay the science that we're doing to a group that uh, seems to be as enthused about it as uh, we are. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you both for your work. And yeah, we'll try to try to keep uh, putting it out there as simple as I can do it with as few mistakes <laughs> as I can. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Chris McCurdy, Dr. Brian Pearson, and University of Florida. Please blast us out all over your social media and help support the podcast. Music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast does not constitute medical claims or medical advice. And it's written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.